Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flint. Well, Margaret, the number of covered Americans continues to increase even after the close of the open enrollment in April. More than 7.2 million Americans are newly covered under Medicaid expansion, including those earning up to 138% of poverty line. And it should be noted, Mark, that that number includes the newly covered Americans who live in states that did not expand Medicaid. There were tens of thousands of newly covered Texans under Medicaid who had been uninsured, heard all the talk about the health care law, sought information about their options, only to find out they were already eligible under the existing Medicaid guidelines. And we've seen a lot of that right here in our own backyard. And it also should be noted that the federal government is covering up to 100 percent of the Medicaid expansion for three years. States that choose not to expand Medicaid have left billions of dollars on the table that would have helped them ensure more of their residents, about 25 states thus far refusing to participate. And I'm still waiting to see what happens after the midterm elections on that, because health care has become a truly partisan agenda and people's health and well-being is hanging in the balance. GOP analysts are now trying to promote the party's image as the party of yes. After some 40 attempts to vote down the health care law, the new strategy is going to focus on changing the law. And I think we'll see a lot more on this new approach as we get closer to those elections. And there's another story that continues to unfold, the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, which has spread to several countries. The World Health Organization is issuing strict warnings about travels to that region. They fear the epidemic is months from being brought fully under control. Roughly a thousand people dead so far, and now some four countries involved. And American aid workers who have fallen ill have been given an experimental drug that had not been tried on humans until now, uh, some promising results. And so the question is how much to manufacture of this drug containing and treating this deadly virus continuing to pose just an enormously serious global health challenge. And that's something our guest today knows quite a bit about. In fact, she has served on the front lines of some of the most urgent medical crises around the globe. Dr. Dean Marchbind is president of the U.S. chapter of Doctors Without Borders. They have clinicians on the ground in West Africa, in Gaza, Afghanistan, and numerous hot spots around the world. And we'll also hear from Lori Robertson, the managing editor of factcheck.org. She's been keeping quite busy chasing misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain and shares them with us every week. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at info at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter at CHC Radio because we'd love hearing from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Marshbein in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. There's a drug development boom underway. One of the upsides of the deadly outbreak of the Ebola virus in several West African nations, which has led to roughly 1,000 deaths and upwards of 1,800 sickened, while the World Health Organization warns the epidemic should be considered a global concern and Doctors Without Borders estimates it could take months to contain the outbreak, drug manufacturers who have been working on experimental treatments are fast-tracking their efforts with a little help from the federal government. While two American healthcare workers have shown improvement after being given an experimental treatment from a tobacco plant derivative and other drugs are in the pipeline. The FDA is approving its limited use in this current crisis and the federal government is providing funds for these drugs to be rapidly developed, cautioning that Ebola could be used in a terrorist attack. The computer engineer said to be the fix-it man for the troubled federal health exchange website, healthcare.gov, 
Google computer engineer Mikey Dickerson has been tapped to run the newly created U.S. Digital Service, a government agency created by the White House to fix any other troubled governmental websites with the same private sector wizardry and alacrity applied to the fix of the beleaguered federal exchange. The goal is to lure smart technologists from the private sector and bring them in-house. Meanwhile, healthcare.gov continues to be evaluated and tweaked as they ready for the next open enrollment, which happens in November. Newly installed Secretary of Veterans Affairs Robert McDonald vowed at a recent gathering of disabled veterans that he would restore credibility and trust to the VA with a series of actions on the heels of Congress passing a nearly $17 billion emergency funding plan to expand services at the VA. McDonald highlighted plans to conduct an independent audit of all VA scheduling practices and penalize VA outposts performing poorly. He acknowledged a long tradition at the agency of cover-ups, attempts to game the system, and a failure to protect whistleblowers, and said that all that is going to change. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of recent veterans of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are continuing to grapple with unmet behavioral health needs relating to traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress disorder. An estimated 22 soldiers a day are committing suicide at last count. And a sizable chunk of Vietnam vets are still grappling with the effects of PTSD as well. More than 11 percent four decades after the end of that conflict. The study done by the American Psychological Association shows that even with improved treatments, the condition can linger for a lifetime. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Dean Marchbind, president of the board of directors of Doctors Without Borders, winner of the 1999 Nobel Peace Prize, an international organization dedicated to offering health care and medical training in war-torn and impoverished countries around the world. Dr. Marchbind is an anesthesiologist practicing at Mass General Hospital in Boston. She earned her MD at the University of Pittsburgh and completed residency at Mass General and the Boston Children's Hospital. She also serves on the board of Vanconia Anemia Research Fund. Dr. Marchbein, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. You know, Doctors Without Borders was formed uh, 40 years ago in 1971 in the context of the crisis in Biafra, and you joined the organization in 2006, taking over leadership of the U.S. chapter in 2012. And during that time, there's been no end to the world conflicts that uh, Doctors Without Borders finds itself in. And uh, I think people know about Doctors Without Borders in in the abstract, uh, but what's the core mission of Doctors Without Borders and who are you serving around the world? So you're right, Doctors Without Borders was founded 40 years ago as a result of a very difficult civil war in Biafra in Nigeria. And the premise was that we thought there needed to be an organization that could both deliver direct emergency medical care but also speak out about the underlying causes and what we were seeing as we were working in those places. So the primary mission is, as I said, direct delivery of medical care and emergency aid to people affected by armed conflict, epidemics, malnutrition, natural disaster, and also situations where people are are excluded from access to health care. And we're currently operating between 60 and 70 countries worldwide. So we have more than 30,000 people who are working for us, and about 10% of those are our international staff. 
Um, and then we work very closely with locally acquired staff in the places where we work. And they really are the backbone of the work that mm-hmm. we do. And those people, as the international staff, are doctors, they're nurses, they're logistics experts, administrators, epidemiologists, laboratory technicians, and even mental health uh, workers. There's an important mental Mm -hmm. health component of most of the projects that we do. Well, Dr. Marshband, we're uh, at this moment, we are watching uh, humanitarian and war zone crises just unfold before our eyes, it seems, almost every day. You just released a statement condemning Israel's bombing of a hospital in Gaza. Your members are on the ground in West Africa, where the Ebola outbreak has led to hundreds of deaths and seems to be spreading. And I know his has affected healthcare workers on the ground, conflict in Ukraine, the ongoing Syrian crisis. So maybe you could share with us a little bit about uh, in these hotspots, what are your healthcare workers experiencing there and how do they grapple with delivering uh, both the emergency medical care, but also you're delivering almost some primary care in an emergency environment, I would think while facing the constant threat of violence and ongoing dangers? So you've identified a lot of different contexts. All of these are really very diverse contexts. And one of the issues in Syria is that Syria had been a country where people had access to a very high level of health care. So these are, this was a middle-income country. Mm-hmm. And obviously the, the needs and the expectations of the community are very different in a middle-income country than they are in sub-Saharan Africa. So, for instance, if you decide that you need to do a vaccination campaign where we're working in the countries around Syria and Lebanon and Jordan, getting access to, say, the pneumococcal vaccine is $30 a, a, a dose versus the pennies to just a few dollars that we would have access to those supplies in in the poor countries. Mm. So um, logistically, financially, in terms of our resources, it's very different. And you're right, our resources are incredibly stretched at this point. A colleague said to me jokingly, I don't want to go to the Paris office this summer because I know I'll be sent to the field immediately. (laughs) I do want to sort of give our listeners a little sense of the arc and growth of Doctors Without Borders. Back in 1971, you had 13 physicians. And as you just mentioned, today uh, you employ some 30,000 health professionals and support staff all over the world. Uh, And that's a lot of people to manage. So tell us a little bit, first of all, about the types of people that are coming to you who are offering their services, sort of, is there a screening mechanism that gets used? And then sort of down into the internal workings, the logistics of your field mission teams of doctors and nurses and support staff, how those are structured and and how do you get them ready for medical missions? First of all, it's a global organization. So we are recruiting around the world. So for instance, if we have a project in the Democratic Republic of Congo, we may identify people in that project who are really strong, capable people, and we may incorporate them into our international pool of volunteers. We require that people have professional experience in the area that they are purporting to go to. So uh, a doctor would already have to be a doctor and have worked in their area of specialty for, I think, at least a couple of years. For things like logistics experts, uh, they also have a test. And the test 
attempts to analyze their ability to solve the kinds of problems that they're going to encounter in the field. Mm. And, but more importantly, how they think about things, their flexibility of mind, their ability to take experiences that they've had in one setting and apply them to another. And then there is training that happens before they go to the field. But honestly, the best training that people get is the handover, the one-on-one training in the field. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about MSF is it's really not the kind of rigid bureaucracy that you might imagine in such a large organization. And there's a lot of really grassroots experimentation and working out different problems in the field that then gets reported and incorporated into a broader space and exported to different projects. You know, uh, our organization started uh, not at such a different time. Our organization started in 1972 uh, with a great idea and a mission, and certainly we are well familiar with all uh, organizations that seek to uh, do good in the world, start with a great idea, and the challenges of infrastructure catch up with you as you're growing and expanding. So we'd be really curious to hear from your perspective what have been the major changes within uh, Doctors Without Borders or Medicine Sans Frontier, MSF, as you've uh, referred to it? I hope I've said that correctly. You did. Thank you. Thank you. What What has really carried through from the beginning? What has just been kind of hardwired into the DNA of the organization from the beginning? And where have you really made notable changes in order to support this growing mission? There are lots of good ideas in the world. Right. And there are lots of people who want to do good. But the measure of your success is, how much good do you really do? And when they first started, and I look at what the first volunteers did, they literally came with the medical bags that they could carry into places like Afghanistan, crossing the mountains. And when I think about the sophisticated kind of medical care that I have personally delivered in some of the places, very remote places that we've delivered it, I think about how amazing it is that we've been able to do that. And first and foremost, I think it's our logistics. So I'll give you an example. I got a phone call a few hours after the earthquake in Haiti. And I was at my day job in Boston. And at the same time that I was dispatched from Boston to Port-au-Prince, a plane left our logistics center in Bordeaux. And on it, it had an inflatable hospital with everything that you could possibly Mm -hmm. imagine Mm -hmm. that would be needed for a hospital. So there's this great thought process that went into, if I have a cholera epidemic, what do I need to treat cholera for 10,000? If I have a, a surgical emergency, what kind of hospital do I need? And so all of that has been carefully thought out and is ready to go. So I think the logistics is really important. And when I go to the field, all I take is myself and know that there is systemization of the material that I will find there, Mm -hmm. of the pharmaceuticals, and that allows me to really hit the ground running. And it's the medical mission that's important to us. It's delivering medical care to the people most in need. We may have disagreements about what those needs are or how best to do it, 
but we're all focused on the patients that we treat, and that is core to our DNA. We're speaking today with Dr. Dean Marchbein, President of the Board of Directors of Doctors Without Borders USA, an international organization dedicated to offering health care and medical training in war-torn and impoverished countries around the world. You talked about hitting the ground, and we hit the ground most often. You're running into women and children who've suffered the most and are in most in need. And so you're dealing with a lot of maternal and child health issues. I, I, I would expect you've got the logistics and the technology there, but I'm sort of interested in the cultural competency that comes in where people approach uh, these issues in, in different ways. How well equipped are you in that sort of cultural context to deliver care? Actually, I think the cultural component and competency and awareness and sensitivity is su- super important. There's always a cultural briefing, but you would have to ask our patients and the people where mm-hmm. we work about our cultural competency because I'm not sure that I'm, I can answer that mm-hmm. question. But a perfect example of how important that cultural sensitivity is, it was Afghanistan, where I work. So Afghanistan, basically in a state of war and conflict for the last 25 or 30 years, with some of the world's highest maternal mortality figures. And so MSF decided that we really needed to be working in Afghanistan, and one of the places that we opted to work is a town called Khost, which is on the border with Pakistan. And so the team that was investigating what kind of mission we should do sat down with the community, sat down with men, sat down with women in the community to let them decide and inform us about what their most pressing health needs were. And it was the community that said we really need help with maternal health Mm -hmm. because the levels of maternal mm. mortality are just unacceptable. And so we opted to open a, a maternal hospital. And more than that, we decided to make ourselves really valuable to the community. We would staff it entirely with female staff. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can imagine deciding to staff entirely with mm-hmm. female staff in a place where education is has not been in the forefront of their agenda, especially for women, for the last 30 years you might start to think about the the difficulty. So every single job in the hospital, so there were international staff that came, and each of the international staff's job was to train local people to do their jobs. So midwives needed to be trained, uh, obstetricians or doctors with obstetrical skills needed to be trained, Uh, The people, the interpreters needed to be hired. The guards who would check every person entering the hospital for weapons Mm -hmm. and concealed contraband needed to be women, and they needed to be trained. And I came to work at this hospital, which was an amazing experience. And during the time that we were have been there, which I think is almost two years now, not there has not been a single death of a mother who arrived at our hospital not already practically dead. Hmm. Um, And in a community where women have children on average uh, one every 15 to 24 months, when you're doing 12 to 15,000 deliveries a year, it doesn't take very long before you've had a major impact Mm -hmm. on the community. 
Well, that's a, a profound example and uh, kind of directly segues into uh, what I wanted to ask you about, which is really population health, which we certainly are talking a lot about in the United States uh, under health reform. But uh, certainly population health takes on a whole new meaning in the areas where you are working. And I know that you've had some such as your campaign for essential medicines and your nutrition programs in sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere. Maybe tell us what you've learned about successful population health management in some of these targeted zones. What kind of different uh, skills or people or infrastructure has that called forth? And um, you know, maybe you could share some success stories about both what your organization and, and the other NGOs and entities that are working to achieve the goals of the UN Millennium Project uh, are learning from this experience. So the Access Campaign is a campaign that we developed using the proceeds from the 1999 Nobel uh, Peace Prize. And the reason that we decided that we needed a campaign to assure access to essential medications was because we found that in the field we did not have access to the medicines. The kinds of medicines that we needed were either too expensive or they were simply not geared toward the needs of the populations that we were addressing. So, and that's pretty typical of medical research, which is geared toward the, the, the drugs and the diagnostic tests are being developed on the basis of their future market potential rather than the, the needs of, of particularly people who live in poor countries. And so that was really um, the basis for the, the campaign for essential medicines, or the, which we call the Access Campaign. The UN Millennium Goals are a little bit different um, because the Millennium Goals are, our goals are a little bit different from the Millennium Goals. The Millennium Goals are basically to increase human well-being over a, a period of time through economic and social development. And MSF is an emergency organization, so it's not really the same platform. But that said, um, some of our work can and does contribute to global strategies. So one of the global goals is reducing uh, childhood mortality. And one of the projects that we have uh, implemented is seasonal malarial chemoprophylaxis. And so it's an approach that you go to a place that has seasonal malaria um, where there is a very high mortality death in especially in children under five years old. And these are children often with comorbidity that includes malnutrition and anemia. And in addition to taking the usual preventive measures to prevent mosquito bites and because malaria is transmitted by mosquito, you, you treat them with medicines during that period of time. And while uh, seasonal malaria chemoprophylaxis is not a cure, in conjunction with other methods to prevent malaria, it's been a huge success. So we started it first in Niger, and um, it's now being trialed in a number of other places. And it, the results have been so exciting that uh, recently Unitaid announced a $67.4 million grant to the Malaria Consortium to implement seasonal malaria prophylaxis in places like Burkina Faso and Chad and Guinea, Mali, Niger, Nigeria, and Gambia. 
And according to Unitaid, so this is Unitaid's information, not ours, they're expecting that this will provide 30 million treatments every year, and this will protect 7.5 million children. Um, and it's estimated that this will prevent 50,000 deaths. Wow. So this is a, an area where essentially um, our, the access campaign, um, the Millennium Project, and the, the goals um, found a, an area of corresponding interest and work. We've been speaking today with Dr. Dean Marchbein, President of the Board of Directors of Doctors Without Borders USA, known internationally as Médecins Sans Frontières, an international organization dedicated to offering health care and medical training in war-torn and impoverished countries around the world. You can learn more about their work by going to doctorswithoutborders.org. Dr. Marchbein, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very much for having me. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, we continue to see Democrats and Republicans attack each other over the Affordable Care Act and Medicare. For instance, in the Montana Senate race, an ad from the Republican candidate, Steve Daines, features a 67-year-old breast cancer survivor who says the ACA puts her Medicare at risk. Meanwhile, an ad from the Democratic candidate, Senator John Walsh, features a senior woman claiming that Danes voted to cut Medicare benefits. We're seeing similar misleading Medicare claims in races across the country. First, the Republican ad. The claim about the breast cancer survivor's Medicare being at risk is based on the tired attack that Democrats cut more than $700 billion from Medicare to pay for Obamacare. The Affordable Care Act doesn't slash $700 billion from the current Medicare budget. Instead, this is a cut in the future growth of spending over a decade. And the slower rate of growth, which applies to payments made to hospitals and other non-physician providers, extends the solvency of the program. It remains to be seen whether this would translate into reduced services. In terms of breast cancer, however, the ACA expanded benefits for mammograms, covering them fully without cost sharing for Medicare beneficiaries on a yearly basis. Now the Democratic ad. It features three senior women, one of whom says that Representative Danes voted to cut Medicare benefits, a reference to Danes' vote for Representative Paul Ryan's budget plan. Ryan's proposal for Medicare would nix the ACA's free preventive care, including cancer screenings and flu shots, and it would get rid of the law's closing of the prescription drug donut hole. But relatively few seniors have drug costs high enough to put them in that coverage gap. So far, roughly 16% of Medicare beneficiaries have saved money on prescriptions thanks to the ACA's expanded benefits. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each 
week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. One of the conditions that results from the tens of millions of surgeries that take place in this country every year is called postoperative ileus, a condition which causes the intestines to shut down temporarily due to the trauma of surgery and the effects of exposure to anesthesia. Put simply, patients could become dangerously ill if given solid food too soon after surgery, which can lead to serious complications and longer hospital stays. Up until now, there's been no more sophisticated diagnostic tool than the stethoscope, where clinicians listen to a patient's belly for a short period of time, awaiting signs of intestinal activity. So this is a major problem because it's so common, and the problem is we're not always sure when to feed people. So we either feed too soon in some cases, and that can cause problems, or we wait too long and people linger in the hospital when they could easily be discharged. Dr. Brennan Spiegel, professor of the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, led the team that developed a new solution, Abstats, and a acoustic gastrointestinal device placed on the patient's abdomen that can monitor the colon's activity in real time. Dr. Spiegel says the disposable abdominal monitors seem deceptively simple, but were the result of a long-time collaboration between many departments at UCLA that are working towards a common goal of finding ways to improve health care. So we've worked with electrical engineers, we've worked with clinicians, surgeons, gastroenterologists, uh, even health economists to understand you know, what would the role and place in therapy be for a disposable device of this kind? Spiegel says with the rising epidemic of obesity as well as intestinal disorders, a device like this could become a standard diagnostic tool in primary care settings and long-term care as well. As we continue to move forward concurrently in testing it in uh, other types of patients like obese subjects and other common populations like those with irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease and so forth. The Abstats, an inexpensive disposable abdominal sensor that has the capacity to quickly and accurately determine the quality of function in the intestinal tract, helping avert complications in the post-op setting, improving patient outcomes, and saving significant money by avoiding lengthy hospital stays. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.